Does your ass smell? Do you want to feel fresh and clean all day long? Of course you do. That's why you need soap. Soap is specifically formulated to gently clean, leaving you feeling refreshed and confident. Washing your ass with soap provides more than just a clean feeling and helps to maintain good hygiene and can even reduce the risk of skin irritation and infection. Soap, the simple solution for a clean and refreshed ass. Try it today and feel the difference. Soap, available wherever they sell soap. Kevin, we kind of messed up last week, didn't we? No, we didn't. We swapped out the wheel and we let Pierce bring in his wheel, this big octagon thing, and because of that, we didn't have a chance to spin the wheel ourselves. So what did we do, Will? We cheated. <laughs> we made life easier for ourselves. Yeah, I said, like, it's going to be your episode, so listen, why don't you pick something that you are a mastermind in, and this will be your specialist topic, and I chose... <laughs> this is going to be the most in-depth, detailed podcast we've ever done because you particularly chose this subject, so... I put a particular asterisk on this and we should leave the asterisk right here and get into the intro. Roll the intro. I'll use small words so that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber. For having listened to it. What did you say? You are a sad, strange little man. Don't call me stupid. Hello, and welcome to The Best Bits, a movie podcast where we pick our favorite scenes from randomly selected, weirdly specific themes. This is your co-host Will, writer of three films plus a Christmas special, and I'm joined, once again, by my co-host and writer of one and a bit films and three and a bit episodes of TV, Kevin. The name's Lehan. Kevin. Lehan. <laughs> Keeping in theme. You know what I was going to do start off tonight with Kevin? I what? was going to go, Bana is Adam Dubba. Seamus Bana. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> that took me a second. I was thinking, who the fuck is Seamus? Seamus Bana is Adam Dubba. Yeah. <laughs> That's Irish for James Bond. It's my name. I was imagining, have you ever thought about what it would be like if uh, James Bond was Irish? Yeah, he'd be Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> but if he actually claims to be from Irish descent, like, that's, he didn't have MI5. Well, he wouldn't be going around the world dominating like a typical imperialist colonialist. That's yes. for sure. He'd be going around like, what we've Irish got? Bears. Like the UN. The, the, what are they called? The UN forces. The Irish peacekeepers. The that's Irish what he'd peacekeepers. be like. He's just going around, bumping into people and says, no, where are you from? Who are you people? <laughs> Do I know? Are you one of the O'Shea's from outside Taiwan? <laughs> that's, where, that's where we'd be going, Kevin. I'm from Cork. Where are you from? <laughs> Kevin, if our listeners haven't copped it yet, or maybe even haven't copped by the title, or maybe some of the music that's playing, we tonight Copyrighted music, isn't it? Oh my God. Already strike. striking, striking ourselves off the list. Tonight we are talking about our best James Bond scenes And I picked this for myself And I don't know if it is a good thing or a bad thing It's Kevin, a great thing It's Although, a good thing When you picked it, I had I thought to myself, oh Christ Now I have to re-watch so many Bond movies And for the first time, watch nine of them 
I hadn't seen a single one of the 60s Bond movies. Wow. So this week, I've seen 14 Bond films and the rest I'm going off memory. 14? <laughs> yeah. Jesus. And I watched great. nine of them for the first time. So listen, I am shaken and definitely stirred. <laughs> the reason I picked this topic was not because I am an expert or I'm a devout fan. It's because I watched all the films recently. That's the reason. And so I didn't have to do research. That is the sole reason. I'm surprised you didn't pick Body Swap again. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been easy. Just watch all the Body Swap movies. Just watch them all again. Great crack. <laughs> yeah. Daniel Craig, when he was promoting Skyfall, he was on Graham Norton's uh, chat show. Right. And he said that here is how you get your Bond girl name. Yeah. And it's very simple. He said, "You there's a certain formula to it. You take the name that you called your private parts when you were a kid and your grandmother's maiden name. So do you want to know what mine is? <laughs> yes, please. It's Beast Cockburn. <laughs> no, it's not. It's actually, it's actually a really good one though. And I swear right. to you, this is genuine. It's Willie Hyde. <laughs> Yes. Do you want to know what mine is? Go for it. <laughs> Mickey Flynn. <laughs> That's definitely one of the uh, the Irish henchmen. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Mickey Flynn. And I Willie Hyde. <laughs> I can just see him. Oh my God. We can start our spin-off franchise, Kevin. I can, I, I, I think this is it. That's just what we need, Well, More podcasts. <laughs> That's what the world needs. Who were those two weirdos in uh, Diamonds Are Forever? Winton and (gasps) Mr. Kid or something? Yeah. That's That's us. Willie and Mickey. (laughs) Kevin, we've got a lot of bond to cover and we've got a a little bit of time, right? Take your time. We'll be here all night. We're going to be here all night. I don't intend this to be a three-hour podcast, so I needed to find a way to get into it. Um, First of all, I have to tell you, Kevin, that this we are talking about a film franchise which is one of the highest grossing film franchise in cinema history over the course of 25 films which started back in 1962 the franchise has grossed over 7 billion dollars at the box office alone uh we had it's had 13 directors at the helm it's had smash hit theme songs bond has been brought to life by six actors who've officially played the character. And so I have a, a gargantuan topic to try and condense in this in in this uh, podcast. And I said, how the fuck am I going to do this in the easiest possible way? And I said, I got it. I'm going to do the bargain basement way of doing this. I'm going to rank my bonds. You're going to do what to them? I'm ranking my bonds. Oh, rank. Oh, thank God. <laughs> I don't know, Will. I've just been listening to puns all week. I, I, I can't say things like that to me. <laughs> That's fair enough. That's fair enough. So what I am going to do, Kevin, is I am taking my least favourite Bond up to my favourite Bond and I'm going to pick one scene from each Bond's tenure. And uh, that's going to be how I do it. And maybe we can talk about each of the Bonds that way and maybe kind of like vaguely have a conversation about the Bond films. How does that sound to you? Vaguely sounds good to me. Vague is my middle name. <laughs> Mine's Cockburn. You know what? I, I, I've had a very conflict his relationship with Bond, right? On the surface, I shouldn't, I shouldn't like Bond. Because he's English. Do you know we have more listeners in England than we do in Ireland, Will? I know. It's it's not that he's English. It's that he's like a rich kind of like jockey school bully who gets all the girls and doesn't study for exams 
but still comes out with like top marks. Just like Harry Potter. Just, just like Harry Potter. Do you get what I'm saying? There's a kind of a cringiness kind of like being with him, but also I just can't help but enjoy being in his company because he gets to go cool places and do cool things. And he's a super spy. And I like living in his shadow for two and a bit hours. What about yourself? See, okay. When you said let's do Bond, mm. I realized that I hadn't properly seen all of the Sean Connery films. In fact, I'd only seen, and this is appalling, I'd only seen Never Say Never Again. What? So I had never seen so any of his... <laughs> so you'd seen none of his official films? None. Of, I'd seen see chunks the one, of them. Unofficial one. But when I was growing up, right, the Bond movies that were always on the telly were the Roger Moore ones. That's true. That's true. And the ones I was old enough to see were the Pierce Brosnan films. Tomorrow Never Dies was the very first Bond film that I saw in the cinema and I've seen every one since then. Mm-hmm. But I had sort of like seen snippets of all the different uh, entries from Sean Connery and I hadn't really had a good reason to go back to see them. You know, you'd have to buy the box sets and I never did that to sort of explore those films. So this week I had a great excuse to go back to see uh, the films that I had missed. And I don't know, I didn't come away from it feeling uh, put at, at a distance because Sean Connery was the Bond that I was watching the most this week. And I know they call him English. He just doesn't have an English spirit about him. He doesn't come across like an English colonialist. Mm. Uh, there's a there's much more of a Celtic sort of um, alpha male vibe to him. And so I just really fucking loved this week watching these films. I'm delighted. That is, I'm delighted. And I get exactly what you're saying. There's something, there's something different uh, about Connery's bond to the, to even his surrounding characters who actually are proper British people. And, but I think I'm going to wait to, to contribute my opinions on Sean Connery until maybe further up my list. Okay. Because. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. My least favorite. So I'm going to start with my bonds. I'm going to talk about my least favorite bond first, which is Sean Connery. So let's just continue the conversation, Kevin. Seriously. Uh, no, I'm joking. Oh. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. So I'm going to. I know who it's going to be. It's going to be George Lazenby, isn't it? Good morning. My name's Bond. James Bond. Yeah, and obviously in sixth place for me was uh, poor George Lazenby, who got just one film in the role, uh, 1969's On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Okay, so this was one of the films that I watched for the first time for this podcast. Yeah. I had heard that this was one of the best ones in the whole franchise. Same, yes. And maybe it's gotten that sort of like Halloween 3 sort of recontextualization where people are now starting to look back at it and think that was the odd one out, but it's actually one of the better ones. Personally, I thought it was quite slow and I thought it really lacked Connery's character. Mm. The, the way that he played Bond, I couldn't imagine Connery in uh, On a Majesty's Secret Service because of what George Lazenby has to do in it, I just don't think it would it would suit Connery. Yeah. So therefore, I think they would have changed it to suit his persona and his type of Bond. And I think the film would have benefited from that because some of the undercover sort of baronet stuff, the flounciness, it's so, it, it's so odd. It becomes, it became for me in a section, a 60s sex comedy. And it felt so, him putting on an accent, him pretending to be this baron. And it felt so, so, as you said, weird and out of place. He's not a bad actor though. That was one thing that I was surprised about. He's actually, you know, quite capable and quite good in the role. He's just 
very anonymous. What I loved about him and his portrayal and what he brought to the role was his physicality. Because he he fucking really, I think he did nearly all the stunts himself. Not everything, but he did a fair amount of the stunts himself. He kind of insisted upon it because he was this kind of... Uh, what stunts? There wasn't there hardly any in it. What stunts? All the physical fighting and stuff like that. Well, Connery wouldn't do all that fighting. Like he was climbing on things and you know, in long shots where, where, you norm, where Connery would have had a body double, it was lazy to be doing all yeah. the long shot stuff. You can definitely tell. I also thought Telly Savalas was a very odd choice for... Blofeld. He wasn't. He was a poor replacement for Donald Pleasance, in my opinion. I loved he was. Donald Pleasance, but it was, again, it was a different kind of a different interpretation of the Blofeld character. He was a much more kind of suave, kind of like you could imagine him. You know, you could imagine Telly Savalas seducing all these beautiful women to his Alpine mansion. Do you know who he reminded me of, Will? Who did he remind you? Or who he could have been? Yeah. What film do I always talk about? A uh, Jaws. <laughs> no, no. Superman. He would have been a perfect Lex Luthor in Superman the movie. Yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely I right. Am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely right. <laughs> I thought Diana Rigg though was an excellent Bond girl. Yeah. And when you're sort of ranking the Bond girls, mm-hmm. I would put her very, very high on the placement. Absolutely. She was one of the delights of this film. I totally understand why Bond fell in love with her. I thought she was so charming and so effervescent and beautiful, but there was just this lovely- and complicated. Yeah, there was a lovely, yeah, there was a, her character had a lovely backstory and you understand where she, but ultimately I, my scene, I picked one scene from this film that I thought was my favorite okay. scene. And I think it's kind of an obvious pick. If you had to pick one scene from Honor Majesty's Secret Service, what would it be? I think it would be this, the ski slope um, action sequence. Oh, right. You see, well, I wasn't going that I way. I loved the way that that was cut together, the sort of the, the ominous cutting between. I'll tell you the things I really loved about On a, on a Majestic Service. I loved the snowy setting. I loved that it was Christmassy. Yeah. And it definitely had a different vibe to it than the other films. It was it was directed by the editor, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, Hunt. Yeah, it was Peter Hunt. His one and only film. Mm-hmm. And I think he brought in some lovely atmosphere. He was a second unit director on some of the previous films as well. But he brought in some great atmosphere. So there's, there's moments in that where... You've got Bond fighting the the goons who are pursuing him on the skis and they're cross-cutting between the town below and the Christmassy vibes. And I just, I thought I had great style and great atmosphere, but hmm, I'm not sure what your favourite scene would be if it's not that. My favourite scene is the kind of, the, the one scene that really stands apart from all the other Bonds that preceded it and then most after it is the final scene. The scene where, you know, they get married and he pulls over to oh, the side. Yeah. And Blowfield and whatever her, his hench lady is called guns them down. Anyway, you have given me a wedding present. The best I could have. The future. Mrs. Bond, shut up. And don't eat it all at once. He loves me. Instinctively. Infuriatingly. Intensely. In. 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 In? Indubitably. <laughs> First a boy and then a girl. It's Blofeld. It's Blofeld. It's all right. It's quite all right, really. She's having a rest. Going on soon. There's no hurry, you see. We have all the time in the world. 
I think Lazenby's performance in that it's lovely just his delivery of that line it's so sweet I have a theory Will go on what's your theory it's that money penny who has been infatuated and very sweetly in love with Bond through all of the, the films she's at the wedding and she's crying and immediately after um I think he winks at her yeah. or something. Yeah. And he drives off. Go they on. get, gu- <laughs> Diana Reed gets gunned down. And I think Money Penny was in on it. I've tried everything else. <laughs> I think there's a scene missing there where she, <laughs> she sort of slipped information about Bond's movements. <laughs> and Tally Savaris thought, who loves you, baby? Yeah, I think that's uh, a deleted scene though. <laughs> Brilliant. But you know what I, one of the aspects of the film that I really, really love, I love the score and I love the theme song. And those are, the, the music to the Bond series is so integral. The theme tune is one of the only theme tunes which doesn't have lyrics. The sound of John Barry really does contribute so much to the, the feel of a Bond film. He is Absolutely. so important. Now, of course, the, you've got the iconic Bond theme tune, which Monty Norman's the credit is right behind that. But John... It's fantastic. Just like Kevin singing. There you go. It's brilliant. So I think I have to, for this film, I have to really call out and champion the music and the score. And I actually really love that about this film. I want to champion Peter Hunt. Is it Peter Hunt? Peter Hunt, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. He did a great job and I think he probably got, he probably took some of the brunt of the dissatisfaction with George Lazenby stepping in for Connery because Connery fell out with Cubby Broccoli, didn't he? And that's why he decided not to come back. Yeah, it was a very acrimonious, there were, you know, Connery was difficult. He was becoming a he huge star. He fucked it because that would have been such a lovely capper to his storyline. Mm-hmm. And they even, at the end of the previous film, you see, when they went into shoot, you only live twice. He announced, as he was flying over to set, he announced that that was his last bond. And it was just like, what? Because they wanted this to be his last bond. But anyway, it was basically, there was a whole load of complications. But it was they were supposed to shoot on your Secret Service a couple of years beforehand. But anyway, I shall move on to the next fifth pick or second bottom from the list of favorite bonds. You definitely um, know how to complicate things. I certainly do. I've always been like that, Kevin. You know, my mother said that to me. My, Your fifth place bond. <laughs> go for it. My mother used to say that to me. She says, well, why are you trying to brush your teeth through your ears? Like, you know, Jesus Christ, man. Um, That's a good saying, actually. <laughs> just coined it right now. My next least favorite bond is poor old Irish-born Pierce Brosnan. The name's Bond. James Bond. I understand that. I think that Brosnan is a brilliant bond with the shittest run of films. Yeah. And I think that's what happened. I know you have a different opinion to me. I felt he started off, his his tenure started off great with a really fun Bond film. But after that, they they got worse and worse, ex, like exponentially. So I felt all the way right down to die another day. It's such a shame. I think Tomorrow Never Dies is better than GoldenEye, to be honest. Tomorrow Never Dies? Really? Yeah. Michelle Yeoh, uh, Terry Hatcher. I know Xena on the top in GoldenEye is a great Bond gal villain, but the techno music in GoldenEye. David Arnold's score. Yeah, David Arnold's. This is where we miss uh, John Barry. 
It really missed it. David Arnold's hacky yeah, did not feel good. And a lot of those films felt um just just they just felt late nineties, kind of cheaper late nineties action. That's what they felt well, that like. That was that was really early in the nineties, wasn't it? Ninety two. Well no, like? uh Goldeneye was ninety five, then was it Tomorrow Never Dies was ninety seven and then ninety nine and then there was a three year gap to the next from two thousand two dying another day. It was such a shame. I could feel in the cinema the kind of cheapness. Expensive but cheap. Looking. But listen to this. You're talking, you brought up Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah. Tomorrow Never Dies is the first film with a budget over $100 million that was completely financed by product placement. Can you believe that? Wow. Watch the film and you'll see it everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. It's it kind. There's moments in that film where the film actually stops and you think, you Bond think, wears three watches in that film <laughs> yeah. on both wrists. And he's got like a, a cap opener that opens a bottle of Heineken and he literally has like, you know, that car rental service. Like Q shows up. <laughs> Hertz. Yeah. yeah. Is it Hertz? Is it? I can't remember. I don't know. Is it Avis or something like that? And Q actually shows up as a rep. He's actually, he's, he's doing a side job working for them. It's really ridiculous. And then that whole finale <laughs> that takes place in Tesco. <laughs> Unbelievable. But I wanted to point out so GoldenEye is obviously my favourite film from that series. My favourite my favorite sequence and scene from Pierce Brosnan's entire tenure is the, his very first sequence where he we see his Bond uh, bungee, bungee jumping off the side of a huge bloody dam, going in, infiltrating this Soviet base with his best buddy, Sean Bean's 006. The other boy of his daughter. Could you bash I'm alone. Aren't we all? You're late, 007. I have to stop in the bathroom. Ready to save the world again? After you, 006. I love the tension of that entire sequence, which culminates with this amazing action set piece where he has to escape on a... a He's to catch an airplane that's about to fall off the edge of the dam by motorbike. Skive dives and catches up the plane as it's free falling down and uh, controls the plane. And then we go to the the gunshot barrel opener. I think that entire sequence is so wonderfully shot and edited and paced that I was genuinely thrilled and hopeful. Did you see that in the cinema? Yeah. Yeah. It was cracker in the cinema. Absolute cracker in the cinema. I was too young to see that, I think. Oh yeah. You might've been just a year or two. It was 95. It was 95. But you know what it highlighted to me, Kevin, was another... Prologues. Prologues are so important in these films. Absolutely. Uh, And oftentimes they're so much better. But the stunts, man, the stunts are so important. And when the stunts are done for real, it just, oh God. Yeah. The cracker, like, you know, it it gives you that sense of excitement when you see an actor do it uh, for for real totally. on camera. I feel the same way about sex scenes. <laughs> not just not just these digital stand-ins like Avatar. No, I just love watching <laughs> yeah. do it. Yeah. Um, no, but you're absolutely right. Uh, and that's where the Pierce Brosnan films just fall down towards the end. Oh yeah. God, I fell asleep in the cinema during... The world is not enough. I yeah. fell asleep during that. And then I remember just my jaw just being like hung open throughout pretty much all of Die Another Day and just the atrocious sort of CG stunts with him windsurfing on a tsunami and fucking hell. And the plane crash at the end where the plane is like falling for about 15 minutes. And it was just so sort of like weightless and... It, Dumb. It's in complete contradiction to what's preceded it. 
the decades of amazing stunts that were captured and the teams that were put together to actually do the jobs. And like all the other Bond films, they were a traveling family, really. They were making a film every every couple of years. They were always coming back together. Whenever you see skydiving in a Bond film, they were the same guys throughout every film. And I think in the Craig era, you see like amazing stunts coming back, practical, physical practice, practical stunts coming back in. And that just gives us as an audience this visceral experience where we see, you know, they're doing captured on camera. And even if it's just a stunt performer, it doesn't matter. It's just, it takes your breath away. Yeah. I mean, that was what they hung their hat on for many of the earlier films with the, the, the skydiving and the, you know, the Union Jack flag opening up and what have you. But- yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. It's just that the Bond films in the Brosnan era, they, they felt tacky. There's a really weird, you know, the the oddity about the casting of the different Bonds. Have you, do you know this bit of trivia that the person who was first, you know, they obviously when they were first trying to cast Bond, they approached all of the, the main Hollywood players at the time, like Clint Eastwood. Who turned it down. They yeah. turned it down because they said Bond should be a Brit. Yeah, Clint Eastwood. I believe they uh, approached Burt Reynolds as well, but it feels like he would have Yeah, been. they, they uh, also went after Roger Moore. Roger and Moore. And they couldn't get him because he was doing The Saint. There's a repetition of that. So Roger Moore was the first was approached before Sean Connery and he turned it down. And then when, they, when it was time to cast after Sean Connery, they approached Timothy Dalton first. Yeah, but he was too young. He was too young and he turned it down. So they went yeah. back to Roger Moore. But think about that. He, it would have been just after the line in winter. So he's in his early, early 20s. Yeah. I suspect that the next Bond is going to be the youngest Bond we've ever had. I agree with you. I agree with you. But, con- but if you continue that trend, so when Roger Moore was was handing over the, the baton, they had they, they had cast uh, Pierce Brosnan because he was famous yeah. on TV. And he was all set to do it. Like he was all ready to go. And the weekend before they were going to shoot. They Tom Selleck him, didn't they? They Tom Selleck him. Because, well, it was his producer, yeah, the producer of uh, Remington Steel. Remington Steel, yeah. Remington Steel fucked him over and says, no, we're going to, option- we're going to uh, renew your option for another TV series, for another show. So they cast Timothy Dalton, who is my next pick, Kevin. Timothy Dalton is my next Bond. They cast him over a weekend. So he showed up, he was cast on a Friday and he showed up on a Sunday and was shooting on Monday for The Living Daylights. Seriously, it was yeah. that late? It was that late. It was that late. Isn't oh, it incredible? Pierce Brosnan in like The Living Daylights would have been amazing. Yeah. But on saying that, my next, my, my next guy is Timothy Dalton. Bond, James Bond. Each Bond brought a different vibe. Yeah. So Connery was really serious and hard-edged and not that serious, but he was kind of just... He was a tough guy, right? Yeah, he was. A, he was an enforcer type. Roger Moore came in. He was much more of a gentleman <laughs> and proper as well. As I said, he felt like a naval officer. Yeah, and when we get Dalton, we get this more serious, cold, calculating, almost but also a, very sensitive. Very, he's he's a, he's a lot more sensitive than the other Bonds. He certainly is. He actually, you see him really getting involved with his his leading lady, and uh, he's not going around riding all around him, which is gas. <laughs> There weren't any sheep around. <laughs> I think the He's living. Welsh. I'm sorry. Have you? You've obviously seen both the Living Daylights and License to Kill. Yeah, I did. I saw the Living Daylights uh, as a kid. My dad came back from the pub with a pirated copy <gasps> of the Living Daylights. Wow! And uh, sat down and watched it, and had like chips and, and what have you, and thought this is a very this is a very different bond to Roger Moore. It was a lot more um, violent mm-hmm. and uh, intense. 
And it, it felt, it felt more like an action film that was trying to keep up with like the Stallones, the Rambos and, and the, the sort of the commandos of the mid eighties. It just felt more bloody. Yeah, there was an edge to it, a dark image, a more sinister edge. And you see that even from the very first opening. Did they uh, kill actually, Felix Leiter in, in the... In the set, in, in the License to Kill, yeah. They killed license Felix Leiter kill, brutally. Yeah. Maybe that's the one I saw. Sorry, that was the first one I saw. Yeah, that one. That, the, the, that one was a troubled production. Massively troubled production. They shot that in a part of Mexico. A lot of their actions, action ha- sequences happened on the stretching road. You know, when you see the, the big truck, truck doing a, yeah, a wheelie. Yeah, that's a great sequence. Apparently that stretcher road is cursed and people died on the set and there was like, like the road to Dublin was cursed. <laughs> I wouldn't disagree with you there <laughs> from all directions it's cursed <laughs> but but I I actually I think The Living Daylights was the one Bond film that I saw more than any other growing up because it was the tape I had it was on TV I think I might have recorded it off TV did you give it to my dad then? I probably did yeah, he, yeah. yeah and he paid, he paid double as well which is, yeah. you know, a really, 50 you, pence back then. We get, no, he gave me two points. That's <laughs> so right. Two, two points of harp. Double fisted it. <laughs> Fair play to him. But um, I, I really liked Timothy Dalton's uh, interpretation of Bond. I thought I re- revisited a lot of The Living Daylights. He's a bit dry though. He doesn't have any sense of humour. Yeah, the sense of humour. And he can't really deliver the one-liners that are in the script. He he's just doesn't, it doesn't fit with his character. Not that he can't, it doesn't fit with his interpretation of the character. It feels like he's just kind of doing it. But I, what I liked about The Living Daylights is that it kind of went back to the espionage type of story. Yeah. Where tr- I mean, it didn't have any of the fucking slide whistle crap of the Roger Moore yeah, films. Yeah. See, that's what happened in the Roger. It, they started to get so goofy. They started Isn't to there get- a scene in Octopussy where he's swinging and they play they the Tarzan yeah. cry. Yeah. I thought, what? This is Austin Powers territory. What yeah. are you doing, lads? Yeah. That's kind of what started to happen the old Roger Moore era at the end of it. And I, there's a I moment- won't blame Roger Moore for that though because having just watched all of them in sequence, that stuff creeps in in Diamonds Are Forever. The sort of the pastiche stuff starts to slip in there where there's goofy jokes that just feel really out of place when Connery is sort of put into a, a casket and sent into a, a, a the crematorium to be burned up. Mm-hmm. And they do a jump cut to an old guy that's like berating him for giving him fake diamonds. I thought, what? The, this is too goofy. But anyway, I was glad that they got back to a seriousness with Timothy Dalton. Yeah. And what, do you know what I found not weird, but curious is that like a, a, most of those bonds made in the eighties, like that's including Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton's were all directed by John Glenn. Again, he graduated through the school of the Eon Productions to become a director. So he made a lot of those goofy Roger Moore films and then went on to make this really kind of serious, more espionage thriller focused Bond with Timothy Dalton. So I kind of find it interesting how he changed tone so much, you know, or he was allowed to change tone so much for that film. I remember, as you're saying that, just to, on the visual aesthetic, how it changed. Like all of the the Sean Connery ones, they're shot in like cinemascope. Mm-hmm. They're just g- gorgeous. They're so wide and, and great set design and what have you. I noticed that in The Man with the Golden Gun where the aspect ratio changed and it was like Super 35 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it started to look a little TV-like. It felt like they were cutting on budgets. It just wasn't this big, wide, you know, expansive yeah. frame anymore. It didn't look epic. It looked sort of a little pedestrian. They were working with the top 
top people. And uh, that was John Glenn, wasn't it? No, sorry, that was Guy Hamilton. Sure. But it's about the cinematographer, Kevin. Because mm. well, I'll, I'll be going back to the cinematographer later on because the, who they had for those first films, they had top class people working on the first five, first six in particular. Really, really top class people behind and score and cinematography. People have been knighted. Yeah, that sort of stuff. Um, and won Oscars for their, for, their, for their work. But now that I was bringing up Timothy Dalton, I was, I was saying, okay, what's my favourite scene from Timothy Dalton's tenure? And it's, I'm going to pick the, um, the Living Daylights. And I was thinking, what is my favourite scene from The Living Daylights? So I kind of like quickly jumped through the film. And the scene that I enjoyed the most was the scene with his uh, Austin Martin Volante, the scene where he has to, he's escaping the, the Soviet or the Eastern Bloc uh, police cars. And he's got, he's got uh, an Austin Martin car that's got all the gadgets and he's got a rocket launcher and skis. And he's, you know, it's, <laughs> I, and, and I, I just went, oh, this is a cool car. And Timothy Dalton looked really cool driving it. And all the things it did was cool to me back then. And I watched the thing and went, oh, that looks so class. What is this? I've had a few optional extras installed. safety glass. Look yeah, the car porn is, is big on the Bond films. And the, like going back to like, you know, obviously Connery's, you know, Austin Martin from the, the, the early films. And <laughs> although I was saying to you earlier before we came on mic that, um, it was really undignified to see Sean Connery on a trike, oh. like racing around the, the sand yeah. dunes. I thought, what have they done to this man? <laughs> yes, yes. Although I did enjoy in some films where they, you know, for a gag, throw throw Bond into a kind of really shitty Citron or something like that, and yeah, still yeah, see, stuff. Yeah, yeah, still see how he kind of uh, over overcomes the the bad guys or an octopusy. He's on one of those. What are those Tic Tacs or whatever they call You know, those little kind of like taxi. Kind oh, of like rickshaw. Rickshaws. Yeah. And yeah. then he's, he's still. <laughs> I, can't remember, I can't remember what it was called. Is that one of the Bond villains henchmen's Tic Tac? I'm afraid it actually yeah. might be. Nick Knack. <laughs> Nick Knack. That's him. He was great actually. But yeah, so like it's got cool, ga- it's got cool gadgets in that film. I, I, I like it. I like Timothy Dalton's interpretation and I feel Timothy Dalton should have gotten that third outing. Why did they get rid of him? Did he, did he want out himself? No, he was going to do it. It was a rights mess up. Oh yeah, that's right. Because this wasn't it the longest break between... Yes, between... Brosnan uh, and, and uh, Dalton. Yeah, it was like six years. Than, it was five to yeah. six years. And it, but it, they, had a, they had a script written called... It was called um, At the Request of a Lady, which was based on one of uh, Ian Fleming's... That's Fleming's. a nice title. Yeah, it was one of Ian Fleming's uh, Bond stories, short stories. He was going to do it. was un, not until the very end very close to the end where they, he himself, Dalton felt that he was too old at that stage. So he volunteered to step away. My God. Did he mm-hmm. watch any of the Roger Moore films? 
<laughs> Roger Moore said in one interview, I remember uh, watching him once saying that um, he decided it was time to go when uh, a critic had said that for Roger Moore getting out of a chair is a stunt. <laughs> I love it. You know what I appreciate about Roger Moore in the, in the later films is that he he definitely is aware that he's a bit too old to be betting the ladies. So when the yeah. younger girls go at him, it's all in a... He's when not he goes pursuing, at the younger women. They're, well, they're coming at him. It's more of that he's not pursuing them. He's kind of going, oh. Fuck's sake, in all the films, I was starting to think it was a... You can really tell that Fleming was like getting his rocks off to these stories yeah. because the women just, they, they basically say hello with their legs behind their ears. <laughs> yeah. It's like it unreal. Yeah, it feels like but a- I loved Roger Moore and I know, I know what you mean. He, he was in on the joke. He was in on it and he seemed to be a gentleman. He seemed to be a very nice yeah, individual. And, and himself, I'll tell you one, you might not know this fact, but what? I was sort of like uh, looking up just so that if there's any sort of things I can mention. Yeah. That um, when it came to uh, Octopussy, Roger Moore's contract had run out. So he was a free agent. And Sean Connery obviously had stepped away at that point. Mm -hmm. And uh, the producers had spoken to both of them about coming back for uh, Octopussy. Right. And the other producer who splintered off from them whose name I can't remember now. Was it Salzman or somebody else? Well, Salzman had gone off and he's, they, they'd parted ways. All right. So I can't remember who the, who the other so guy was. So Never Say Never Again. They yes. had two scripts in front of them and they offered them to both uh, actors. Roger Moore and Sean Connery both were offered both films. And they got together themselves and they had a, a meeting and Roger said to Sean, which one do you want to play? And he said, well, I'm not working with Cubby. So he took Never Say Never Again and Roger took Octopussy. They both got paid an awful lot of money to come back. And they sort of like, um, they were in on it themselves. They wow. were playing everybody else uh, off against each other. And it became the Battle of the Bonds that year. Did both and Bonds come was, out the same day? I have a feeling that. I, I don't know if they came out the same day. They definitely came out the same year. Yeah. And I was surprised that Never Say Never Again did so well. Did it? I actually didn't look at the stats for that. Yeah, it was a pretty... Also, the budget on that was huge. You don't see any of that on screen, I don't think. It, it feels like the ropiest of the Bond It's films. going into Sean Connery's pocket. That's why where the budget's going. But I think there's there's not much in it. It's like one of them made $160 million at the US box office. The other one made like $148 million. Wow. So it was... It was yeah, people were into it. Wow. Oh, wow. That's, that's fascinating. But yeah, they were pals, Roger Moore and Sean Connery. The Cobby Broccoli was playing games at the time as well because he went about recasting uh, Bond. He so he did a screen test and had uh, Josh Brolin's dad. Uh, what's his first name? He was in a, Josh uh, Brolin. Josh Josh Brolin's dad. What's uh, what's Josh Brolin's dad's name called? Oh no, Josh Brolin's dad is yeah. James Brolin. James Brolin. He, he yeah. did a like several screen tests with James Brolin and Brolin and made sure that Roger knew that we're screen testing uh, someone else. For the part. Didn't they do something similar with Toby Maguire and Jake Gyllenhaal in Spider-Man 2? Did they? Yeah. Oh, they cast know. they cast Jake Gyllenhaal because Toby Maguire was holding it for more money. Oh, wow. I didn't know about that. Wow. And then he said, no, it's okay. I'll fine. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, whatever, whatever. <laughs> that brings me on, Kevin, to my third favourite Bond. And it's the most recent Bond, Daniel Craig. The name's Bond. James Bond. Ooh, okay. Mm. Yeah. Well, I like Daniel Craig. 
I don't know how you, and I like Daniel Craig's iteration of Bond. We had, before Daniel Craig, we had Pierce Brosnan, which got a little bit more Roger Murray. And Daniel Craig comes in and Daniel Craig's Bond, he gets the shit kicked out of James him. Blonde. <laughs> I feel, what I enjoy about Daniel Craig's Bond is that he gets- it's the way he purses his lips. No, it's the way- He gives the blue steel. <laughs> It's the Bond. It's the way he gets the shit kicked out of him in every film. We have never seen Bond. I'll tell you what, I remember seeing Casino Royale in the cinema and feeling genuinely uncomfortable. And first of all, it took me a second to figure out what the fuck is going on here when Bond is naked tied to a chair with the with the seat taken out of it. Yeah. And he's swinging a... a, a like a waist? Like, yeah, it's like a... I don't know what you call it. It's like a rope, rope-a-dope type thing. Yeah. And he's battering his his balls with it. <laughs> yeah. I thought, this is hardcore. Yeah. That is really hardcore. We had never seen anything like that. It was taking that uh, uh, golden eye scene where the laser's coming up between Connery's legs. It just is as if the laser was actually separating his <laughs> testicles and actually cutting through his scrotum. I think that's the only way we could have had something to compare to the battering that Daniel Craig experienced in those films. I uh, I think Craig has been great in the role and I enjoyed his tenure because they've done something. They've created an arc with his character. They co- could have ended it after the third film and I think maybe they should have ended it after the third film. But I still enjoyed, you know, the most recent one. I know you have a different opinion. What's your feeling on Craig? I think that Craig, he had great scripts. He had excellent Bond girls. He had the best looking and the, the best written Bond girls of the whole franchise, I think. Mm-hmm. He had two absolute bangers, two brilliant, brilliant films, like great action films, but also great Bond films. Mm -hmm. So I think he came out of it quite well. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, they had to do what they did with with Bond after the Bourne franchise came along and sort of like showed up how out of touch and and sort of how cheesy the Bond franchise had gotten with Die Another Day. Mm -hmm. So... I really like, like, I, I've i seen all of the Craig films in the summer. I've seen, as I said, I've seen all of them since Tomorrow Never Dies. But they all looked really promising. The only one that really let me down was Quantum of Solace. And I understand why that came yeah. about because of the writer's strike and them not having an actual script and not being able to change anything that was written before the strike came into effect. So they were sort of like hampered by that. Mm. And... I agree with you. I, 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 I would include the No Time to Die. That that was, I thought that was very entertaining as well. Um, but for other reasons. I, I, what I really loved about the Craig's era is that, yeah, we did, we actually had a bit of a character arc, which was great. But what I loved was the physicality. See, I didn't like that. That's fine. You, you, it's okay to not like so it. So this is the thing. This is what I wanted to say to you. Do you think that it's better for Bond to be standalone or sequelized? Because I thought that they tied themselves in knots too much with the Craig era, where they all became sequels, apart from my personal favourite of the Bond uh, films from Craig, which is Skyfall, which feels very standalone. Yeah. I personally think, to answer your question, I think they're definitely better standalone. I think. Okay, good. I definitely think. I love that. Uh, what, why I appreciate what they've done with, this, with Craig's era is they've done something a little bit different. They've kind of experimented with something. And that experiment is closed now. That's finished. No, yeah. let's go back. And never and do, ever do it again. And let's do our standalone Bond films, I don't want please. to see Bond on his knees begging Rami Malek <laughs> to not hurt his mute 
French. Don't spoil. Don't say that. <laughs> I'm gonna please. I'm gonna please. I'm gonna oh my god! I thought you. this is not Bond. They've what, what is this character? And then his his child bride. Yes, just like should, oh. should have been uh, Monica Bellucci from the previous. It film. should have been yeah. Monica Bellucci. Yeah, it absolutely should have. They should have switched those characters. Yeah, he should have gone off with a woman his own age. It would have added so much more gravitas to that and then I would have been totally on board with it yeah. it would have felt really beautiful you, and sort of like Bond has grown up you don't believe you with, don't believe it do you you don't believe that relationship no they had no, no. chemistry and she just looks like a pouty teenage girl where it's like what is he doing to this he's wrecking her life leave yeah. her alone and I just thought it was so convoluted anyway I'm not going to shit on your favourite Bond film which is No Time to Die no, my favourite my favourite well I, I understand I, I'm kind of split between Casino Royale and Skyfall, but I'm going to pick my favourite scene from Daniel Craig's uh, films. And my favourite scene from Daniel Craig's films is... I know, it has to be that scene. It's got to be the train sequence with Eva Green. No, I'm not picking that scene because there's so many scenes. The one I'm going for <laughs> is the one that I gave me the most, visceral, podcast. the most visceral reaction in the cinema. And it's when he's poisoned in the middle of uh, doing the, in, in the middle of the card game and he oh, knows yeah. he's been poisoned and he's like and he immediately reacts in the one thing that's amazing what's cool about James Bond's character is that he's always cool under pressure right he is always cool under pressure so he immediately stumbles from his table he grabs a glass some uh, salt shaker goes to the bathroom fills the salt shaker into the dra- glass tries to tries to puke then we see him staggering across the road outside the street he gets hit by a car goes into his his own car calls HQ. A Citroen. Citroen. A third hand Citroen. <laughs> That's not past NCT. And he has to defibrillate himself. Who is it? 007. Bond's been poisoned. He's going into cardiac arrest. Stay calm. And don't interrupt because you'll be dead within two minutes unless you do exactly what I tell you. I'm all ears. Remove the defibrillator from the pouch. Do we know what it is yet? I'm still scanning. Attach the leads to your chest. Ventricular tachycardia. Digitalis. What the hell do we give him? Okay, that's not first as soon as it reads charge, okay, that'll work. Bond. Don't push the red button. Yeah, do you hear me? Don't push it yet. His heart's gonna stop. It's only time for one charge before he passes out. Take the blue combi pen, Bond. Mid-neck, into the vein. That'll counteract the digitalis. You're going to pass out in a few seconds and you need to keep your heart going. Push the red button now, Bond. Push the damn button. Do it now. Yeah, that was class. With with uh, M saying just like get on with yeah, it. Type just thing, press the it? button, Bond. Just press the button, <laughs> and he actually he actually doesn't press the button, and Eva um, uh, Eva Green uh, saves him at the end. But I love then we have to cut to him returning to the table, and it's like ah oh, yeah, I just I just defibrillated it myself. Has a very odd structure that film. At the end of it but does, it works. but it works. Yeah, it do- but I think it is such a 
an enjoyable film, an enjoyable script, and uh, the action sequences are fantastic. Do you think that Eva Green is the best Bond girl there's been? There's been so many good ones. I haven't ranked my the, the Bond girls. Like you just said, Diana Rigg. I love Diana Rigg. There's there's so many. See, I think Diana Rigg rivals Eva Green for that. Where there's a, there's both Eva Green and Diana Rigg are very complicated characters. There's yes. a tragedy to both of them, but they have a wit and they're. They, they, it feels authentic when they dismiss Bond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like Whereas that. Whereas in some of the other films, they feel almost like it's just part of the flirtation that they're just so yeah. enamored with them. I love the scene in Christina Royale where Eva Green and Bond meet for the first time yeah, on, on the train. True. I love that scene. That's my I love second. The way movie. she says, "perfectly formed ass." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not as good as how you say it, Kevin. Now, in all fairness, <laughs> perfectly farmed ass. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, I need to move on to the next, my next uh, number two pick. And uh, do I get to say my best bit? Oh well, yeah. Why not? Why don't you say your best bit? Go on. It's only because you're at. We're at that point where we're talking about Daniel Craig and my okay. best bit. If I, if I thought when this topic came up, I thought, well, I'm going to pick something that is representative of the Bond franchise and something that you can only get from a Bond film and not from another action film. You can't get from like a Mission Impossible or whatever other ones, Triple X or Bourne or whatever, that it has to be something that you watch it and you think that is the epitome of Bond. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't really settle on what that is because it's, do you go with something with gadgets? Do you go something with the Austin Martin? Is it him being flirtatious with like Eva Green or what have you. And in the end, I put myself back in the cinema when I was watching all the Bond films from Tomorrow Never Dies onwards. And I saw Skyfall at the Odeon in Leicester Square with a packed house, you know, an English audience. And the Bond franchise is, it's an institution within England. It's a great franchise everywhere else, but within England, it is almost like the World Cup mm-hmm. for English audiences. They just, love that franchise and you know we all love it as well but for them it's like it's their guy up on screen and it was watching the opening sequence to Skyfall when you you meet Bond in media res and he is on a mission to capture some sort of database that a, a henchman has gotten off with and it's got all the the names and the aliases of the the MI5 and MI6 agents and he's assisted by Money Penny it's the introduction of Money Penny uh, we don't know that's who she is yet. You bring back M, Judy Dench. You have this whole team around him. You've got Tanner. And it is a, a chase sequence that sets up the theme of the movie, which is M stopping at nothing to achieve her objectives and Bond just being a dutiful son. And there are moments in that that chase sequence that it was electrifying in the audience, but there's two things that make it sort of perfect Bond to me and you wouldn't get it anywhere else and that's where Judy Dench says to Bond get after him you realise what happens if he gets away with that and Bond says yes ma'am and it's in the middle of the chase and I think there's no one else is going to say something like that in an action sequence and it just it typifies Bond being Mm -hmm. the servant to her majesty and in this sequence in that film it's Judy Dench being the queen which way? keep going I can direct you from here you both know what's at stake here. We cannot afford to lose that list. Yes, ma'am. And uh, the thing that I remember most vividly about that chase sequence was 
when Bond is jumping from one of the train carriages onto the next one and he's hotly pursuing this guy and the, the scene just keeps escalating and escalating and escalating and he's being assisted by Moneypenny, his sort of, his greatest fan. And he's been shot at, he's injured, but he's still in pursuit and he jumps into the train carriage and when he lands, he fixes his cufflinks mm. and I remember just the audience just erupted in claps and cheers and they just thought like, that's their guy. That's Bond. No one else is going to do that. He's just so, as you said, cool under pressure. And yeah, that sequence just keeps building and building until you get to the point where Money Penny has to take the shot and it's a shot that could kill Bond. And Judy Dench is like, do it. It segues beautifully into the Adele song, yeah. which I think is one of the great Bond songs. Absolutely. And yeah, I just think that sequence for me is the most excited I've been in the cinema watching a Bond film. And I think it's great. I may have a shot. It's not clean. Repeat, I do not have a clean shot. Little tunnel ahead. I'm going to lose them. Can you get into a better position? Negative, there's no time. Take the shot. I say take the shot. I can't, I mean it, Bond. Take the bloody shot. A great time just to briefly mention another staple of the Bond franchise, which is the those opening credits, which were done in the early days by Maurice Bender, who did amazing jobs. But uh, but it was a great opportunity to to have everyone who worked on the film up front, like second unit camera rigger is, you know, and it was just an excuse to get that And song I think the play. Skyfall ones are some of the most beautiful and, oh, and some class. of the best. Yeah, it really is class. Ah, uh, yeah, it's that's a fantastic pick, Kevin. It really is. And it ties nicely into something I want to talk about in my next pick. So my second favourite Bond is, of course, Roger Moore. Uh, Mr. Bond. James Bond. Uh, we've already mentioned so much about Roger Moore. He's charming. He's He's got a lovable quality about him. He's he does. dapper. I think he gets shit on too much, to too be honest. Too much. But his films are so much fun. But the thing I wanted to highlight about the Roger Moore era, which is the cast of reoccurring characters. You've already mentioned the likes of M. Lois which- Maxwell and... Yeah, Lois Maxwell, who had Money Penny, who is he's forever flirtatious, you know, unrequited the unrequited love between the two of them. There's that relationship. M is like the the headmaster, or as you said, is the mom or the dad in the family. Q is the nerd in the class that he loves to tease. And the, the likes of Felix Leiter, who's he's like buddy out in the fields. But in every film, whenever you're in the safe house with M and Q, there's there's a familiarity in, in that scenario. And I yeah. think it's so important. It's one of these kind of comforting aspects to a Bond film. Like you love the Q scenes, but I love the Q scenes in the Roger Murray because Roger Murray- That's when they were getting a lot more- f- fun to be honest they were so goofy they were so goofy you know and I think they work really well in the Roger Moore era they also work really well in the Brosnan era some of the best Q scenes are with Q and and, and Brosnan's Bond now 007 do please try and return do please try and return some of this equipment in pristine order don't touch that it's my lunch 
when he's, he, he picks up a sober sandwich thinking, <laughs> What's this? is this going to have a bomb in it? Like, that's my lunch. <laughs> See, I feel that's when Brazen was getting a bit pastiche because he was getting a bit Roger Moore-y. And it was like, no, Roger Moore did that. You know, as in- yeah, Fuck it. He had to liven up those films somehow. These guys somehow. What I'm going to pick from the Roger Moore era is- okay, This will be good because there's a lot of Roger Moore- There's a lot of Roger Moore- stand out. And I actually was going to go with a, a Bond and Q moment because they're all so lovely and fun. And he and Q, Desmond Llewellyn, played him right up until Tomorrow Never Dies. And tragically- Die. He That wasn't supposed to be his last film, but he tragically died in a car crash before the film came out, like two weeks before the film was released. Yeah, he was speeding on the motorway. He was, like, absolutely gunning it. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of my way, I'm fucking cute. Rest in peace. <laughs> Bond, Bond just goes into speed all the time. Why can't I? God damn it. But actually, the, the scene I'm going to go for is from The Spy Who Loved Me the opening sequence where we have him skiing, being chased down the side of a cliff by bad guys. And at the Union Jack flag. The Union Jack flag, baby. Yeah. What a cool stunt where we see, again, we see that it's actually a combination of the stunt people who pull that 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 gag off. And it's that moment when you, you see that he's in this yellow and red kind of trimmed outfit and he just goes right off the edge and the soundtrack just just cuts quite so, doesn't it goes completely quietly, and we're watching him watching and he feels like we're tracking him forever and ever and ever and ever and just and those skis are kind of flapping around the place and then all of a sudden he pulls the cord and the union jack flag uh billows out the the score erupts uh, kicks a, in yeah. a part of my ancestry turns in their grave <laughs> you know my ancestry <laughs> It better. And I'm a naked woman in silhouette with a gun, spinning round. Makes me feel sad for the rest. Nobody does it. Oh, bit of nipple. But I feel like that wasn't that the second uh, Roger Moore Bond. Oh no, that's well down the road. That was like his fourth at least. Oh, was it? Mm-hmm, yeah. Live and let die. Then live and let the man with the golden gun. Oh, maybe it's maybe it's the third one. So it's oh, maybe just why you love me. Then it was for uh, for your eyes only. I feel like if anyone had any um, doubts about Roger Moore's Bond at that stage, they were blown away by by that one image. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's an iconic. He's Bond now. Yeah, it's an iconic moment from the entire Bond franchise. It's like Jerry Halliwell walking down the Brit stage <laughs> yeah. in. The Union Jack dress Union Jack like, dress. makes you want to stand up and salute and say, God bless the Queen. But th- what I want to highlight, right, <laughs> is it's so important that we, in every Bond film, that you do have these staples. Like you do need those grounding relationships. Relationships are really important. That Bond and Moneypenny, I feel that Bond and Moneypenny should always have a kind of a, a flirtation going on. It doesn't have to be sexist. It doesn't, it's just, there has to be this chemistry. And it's just ever... N- Right, okay. I feel it needs to be there. Yes, and it was there in... So this is one thing that stood out to me. Moneypenny and M, 
were very fond of Bond mm-hmm. throughout all of the Connery era. But then when Roger Moore came along in The Spy Who, uh, was it The Man with the Golden Gun? Maybe it was that one. That's his second Not, one. Yeah, it was his second film. They were very curt and abrupt to him. Mm-hmm. And Moneypenny didn't like him. And I thought, what's gone on here? What's changed? And I don't know if there was something that happened in Live and Let Die because I didn't revisit that one because I had seen that one before. Uh, that sort of signified the change there. I honest, but then they get back to they get back to normal. Again I just think they, they might have been experimenting there. Sometimes they tr- they just try little tweaks on it. But I think it's yeah. I think those relationships are so important because that's his family. That's yeah. Bond's family, and I think it's so integral. Can I mention one thing though about Bond as well, mm-hmm. which is sort of like a. You talk about the sort of the the familiarity between the cast of characters mm-hmm. and Bond is almost like drag and dropped into them and he's the different element. And then you bring in different henchmen, different Bond girls, what have you. Yeah. But there are certain tropes of a Bond film that sort of have held true throughout all of the films up until No Time to Die, which sort of broke formula entirely. But it's that you have a Bond villain who's got some sort of perversion about himself mm-hmm. or a disability. There's something about him which is not, um, he, he's not, he's not a rival to Bond. He's not on Bond's level, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, you think of the, the man with the golden gun, he's got a third nipple for, for some reason or yeah. Blofeld is scarred or they, they, they've all got something about Doctor, them which feels- Dr. No has got his, his, his he's got these yeah, metal hands. Yeah. Plastic hands. Yeah. They didn't look metal to me. Yeah. And then with the Bond girls, Bond always sleeps with both of them. There might be three of them, but he'll sleep with two of them anyway. Mm-hmm. One of them he'll convert and the other one will get killed because of sleeping with him. And you see it again and again and again throughout all of the Bond films. And then of course, when you get to Daniel Craig, they sort of play with that a little bit more. But yeah, that's also something which happens a lot. You might have your Bond song, you might have your, you know, your gadgets, your your car that can do something spectacular, but you'll also have two Bond girls, you'll sleep with both of them and one of them will die. That's so true. It has actually in any film I'm trying to imagine, no, I think that happens nearly all of them. It's so, so true. It doesn't happen in no time to die though, because you don't sleep with anybody. Really. Oh, oh, no. Okay. Right, right, right. I'm just trying to yep. remember. Yeah, okay. Well, that was the one that really deviated from the formula in many ways. Did. Sucked. So I need to get to my final, uh, my favourite Bond. And of course, my favourite Bond is Sean. I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. Or Thomas, as his actual original birth name was. I didn't know that. Oh my God. There you go. Do you know how much Sean Connery was paid for Dr. Noel? <laughs> 25 grand. You're not far off, actually. Less. 17. He got paid 17 grand for Dr. Yeah. No. Yeah. Like, compared to what he was getting paid for. The- Can I tell you something else about his pay? Go on. When he came back to do Di- uh, Diamonds Are Forever, he got paid 1.25 million, I think it was. Right. And uh, he took that money and he opened a school for uh, education in Scotland. No way. Yeah. What a legend. So fair play to him. What a legend. Oh my yeah. God. I Listen, Connery, when Connery first came into the role, it's as if when we see him for the first time in, in Dr. No at that casino table, which as I mentioned in the best character intro, he feels fully formed. He feels like, Jesus, this guy, there was no shaping that needs to happen to this character. It's already fully formed. But an, actual, there. But an actual fact, how we got to that point was right, yeah, we had Ian Fleming's source material, but... 
Connery wasn't comfortable at all wearing suits or smoking cigars or drinking fancy cocktails. He was a, a rough lad from Scotland. Like, you know, he, yeah, he'd won some, you know, strength competitions or whatever it was. And the director, it was, the director was, it was Terence Young. Terence Young, who was actually originally Irish. No, there we go. But Terence Young was basically Bond in real life by pure chance. He's a guy who had been through the war. He was a war veteran, but he was slick and dapper and cultured and sophisticated. And he saw he had this lad thrown at him that would have been cast, Sean Connery, who was kind of like the well down the list of lads they wanted in the role, who didn't really know his way around a suit. Terence Young helped craft Sean Connery into this suave, stylish, sophisticated James Bond that appeared on set, uh, you know, in that first scene in Dr. No. So a huge credit has to be given to Terence Young for the James Bond that we know and Connery's successful tenure in, in the role. What was your experience watching all those films? So you watched all those films in the last few days. Yeah. So as I said, I never went back and revisited any of them. They were never on telly. I didn't have the box sets. I didn't sort of have a, a good enough reason to sort of go back. And I knew all the big iconography moments from the films, you know, Pussy Galore and, and uh, Odd Job and, and Rosa Klebb, all those kind of sort of like, when I do lists on TV, you'd see all these great sequences. But watching them in sequence, that run of films, Connery had the best run of all of them. And those first five are fucking brilliant. They're great adventure films. Mm-hmm. The, the the set design, oh my God. When we got to, to You Only Live Twice and Ken Adams set there in the volcano, mm-hmm. I thought, all right, that's where Scorpio's set is from in The Simpsons. Yeah. I- uh, it was unbelievable. And looking up online, they actually built that. They fucking did. It's built a million to build it. It was the biggest set ever constructed up to that point. Absolutely, the it biggest was set. jaw dropping. Yeah, they none of the films, even even Craig's films, hold a candle to the the scale and the majesty of the the Connery films. Look, even from Doctor No, Ken Adam was involved. He was the the art director and set designer. He was involved from Doctor No early on, and you can see in his limited budget his artistry in the Doctor No set design. Uh, this very very stylized, sharp edge, sharp angles and spaces. And big he, spaces. Big yeah. spaces. And he used volume. He used depth in all those scenes. He continues to do, uh, work on the sets for 20 years, I'm pretty sure, or more. See, this is the thing, because then I looked up, when I watched Diamonds Are Forever, I thought it it looked, it had gone away from glamour and it had become slightly gaudy. And mm-hmm. I thought they must have changed production designers here. But no, he did that one as well. So mm, I'm not sure. Maybe it's under the, the, the direction of whoever was in charge or whether it was a cost thing, but... I do wonder yeah. about cost. I do wonder if it's about cost, Kevin, in Diamonds Are Forever. But what he did in those first six films is phenomenal, really. And also in the Roger Moore era, he did a couple of great sets in the Roger Moore era as well. I yeah. he, I, I, I really liked his work. And can I can I say though, just before you, you get into what you're, you're yeah. going to say about Sean Connery, that... My favourite Bond film of all of the Bond films, Mm -hmm. it's neck and neck between Skyfall and Goldfinger. Oh, wow. Okay, go on. Yeah. I thought Goldfinger was, Goldfinger was gorgeous to look at. Like, You Only Live Twice as well. And that's a great one as well. Maybe that's in my top three. But what I loved about Goldfinger was the plot of the villain. Mm Mm-hmm. I didn't expect where it was going. And I can almost imagine that the writers of Die Hard 
and the director of Dyer, John McTiernan, what have you, probably said we should do something like Goldfinger, <laughs> which is that you think this this guy is going in to heist the gold, but it's actually not. It's, it, it, there's a twist to it. Uh, he's going to irradiate the gold so that it's useless. They can't go near it. And I thought that is genius. That's a great villain's plot. Yeah. And yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out to Goldfinger because as I said, I'm probably teaching people to suck eggs here and they're like going, yeah, of course, Kevin, we all know Goldfinger's good film. Fucking hell. But for me, it was like, no, actually lads, if you haven't gone back and revisited these films like myself, you don't need a podcast to do it. Go back and watch them. You will actually get a kick out of them. They're great. This bit, those first five, watch them and and be thrilled. My favourite Connery film, my favourite Bond film, and I had to, I actually rewatched it just to kind of confirm for myself, am I sure that this is my favourite Bond film? Because not many people have this as their favourite Bond film, but my favourite Bond film is You Only Live Twice. I think it is a great film though for me it's the culmination of everything that's been built up for before it's not like it's not like any of the rest of them are, are weaker I'm the same as you I could interchange them maybe tomorrow I could swap them around but I love the story of You Only Live Twice it starts off in space first of all I love that and and astronauts being kidnapped from space and taken back to earth it's fantastic and it looks it looks a decade ahead of its time fuck yeah it's, it just came out before 2001 it looks class it really does and we have Bond on the pursuit of figuring out what the fuck happened because these because what's happening is that Russia is blaming America and America is blaming Russia nuclear Armageddon is about to happen and it's Bond's job to figure out what the fuck has happened so he goes to Japan I love it but listen this is one of the things I love about Bond and I I know we've probably just slightly touched on it but it's the locations both the sets and the actual the, the, the globe trotting of Bond oh that's so important it's that feeling of visiting these amazing locations that back then people didn't definitely didn't have the means to be able to go to Japan and see what Japan was like. So they go and watch a they would go and watch a Bond film and experience yeah, watch Bond watching sumo wrestling. There we go, which they actually shot for real. And fucking hell, it looks class. And some of the action sequences are audacious in this film. It goes from like you know, it goes from uh, the bad guys who are chasing Bond in their black car get picked up by a helicopter one of those double-bladed helicopters that's uh pick him pick it up with a magnet and drop them out to sea like how <laughs> audacious is it but it never looks goofy it never looks no. cheap this is the big that thing that doesn't slip in until as i said diamonds are forever never looks cheap and you know the little nelly so uh q's gadget in this is called the little nelly which is this one man the little uh, helicopter thing yeah so when they were shooting that that was actually a guy invented that and they saw it on on tv and went jesus we want that for the next bond movie and so he came along and did it so they were shooting that uh up in the sky and uh, around japan and one of the fucking camera guys got his foot chopped off by a helicopter jesus yeah yeah but he he kept on going which is and that's why you like the film is no not People that's not actually what it, were maimed making it. well maybe. <laughs> that's what i want i want real stunts i oh, want people want... maimed killed that's what i want the bond film none of your cgi fucking tsunamis again kevin you're talking about sets that's that's uh epicenter that big set at the ends where the... i think that set Fuck is better than star wars oh. it's better than it's better than superman it's better than it it is like 
just jaw dropping. Not only that, end sequence. This the film has got ninjas. It's got ninjas, cool (laughs) fucking ninjas throwing stars with samurai swords. We've got a battle between ninjas and specter agents in the end. It's fucking class. Them the the shot of them coming down, you know, the the on the ropes. Fucking love it. But Kevin, I think I've gone on so long. Uh, Let me just say, I love this film. My best bit, and this is my best Bond bit in the entire franchise, and it came out of nowhere. And when I saw it, I got chills and I went, this is the moment. This is the moment that I love. And the moment happened when Bond and Kissy Suzuki go to the dockyards in Japan and they're looking for a ship, but they find themselves surrounded, slowly surrounded by bad guys. They're dockyard workers, but they're actually uh, sinister specter agents. Bond and Kissy kind of escape, but the, and Bond takes out his Walter PPK and shoots a couple of them. But what I love is the music, the John Barry score, doesn't go thrilling and exciting. It slowly builds. Contact Tanaka. I'm not leaving you. Tell him to keep that ship shadowed wherever she goes. Go now. And Bond uh, gets uh, Kissy out of the way and Bond lures the guys to follow him up these flight of stairs and he bursts out onto a rooftop and the music is building more and more and more. But no matter what, no matter how many guys are approaching, Bond is still in control. And what we have on the rooftop is this shot uh, this film was shot by Freddie Young, by the way, who shot um, fucking David Lean's films. It's an amazing cinematographer. We have a helicopter shot and fucking John Barry's score builds and we see Bond running across the rooftops with more and more bad guys chasing after him. And he fucking looks cool as shit. And he's just taking them all on, kicking a couple of guys down to the ground. And I swear to God, if the film ended right there, and if I was ever to... To make a Bond film, I would have him ending on a shot like this of a helicopter pullout shot of him being swarmed by bad guys. But still, we know that this fucking Bond is going to get out of it some way, somehow. He might get the shit kicked out of him, but no matter what, he will come out of it unfazed and cool as fuck. That's the British bulldog spirit, man. Oh, fucking hell. My Irish ancestors <laughs> will absolutely appreciate that. That's why they dominated the whole world. They're just better than us. But I love that moment, that shot, that sense. It gave me tingles watching it again together. I went, that's my Bond moment. That's Bond moment. Bond takes on the bad guys. Uh, it is fucking class, that film. Definitely. Yeah. So wait, Will, before you, you move on, we didn't talk about... Bond songs and I just want to ask because you've ranked all the Bonds oh shit what is first of all what are your give me your top three Bond films 
Just for now. Just for now. At the top, I can say is, uh, well, I don't have to re-rank in my head. I'm going to say uh, You Only Live Twice is at the top. Okay. I I think I would nearly put Casino Royale up there with it. Okay. And I, I'll put another Connery there beside it, like maybe Goldfinger. Yeah. And I'm going to go Goldfinger, You Only Live Twice and um, Skyfall. Oh. Those are my three. Yeah. So similar rankings. Similar rankings. And favorite Bond songs? Shit, I love all the 80s ones. <laughs> I, just, I love A View to a Kill. Yeah. The Duran Duran one, I think is fucking class. Yeah. But the one that stands out to me and sort of, I have a sense memory of it. it, it I can remember just being up at my nans and it's like uh, Saturday morning when they would show the, the the top of the pops type shows of, of all the new music videos. Mm-hmm. And um, the Bono song for Goldeneye with Tina Turner. Yeah, it's class. I fucking love that, that yeah. song. I think it's great. Those yeah. are my two favorites. Sorry, Shirley Bassey. There are very few Bond films that have poor Bond songs. Like, you know, they're they're so class. Like, there's very few of them that, you know, maybe there was the one for Quantum of Solace or something like that. Wasn't that great? Um, but the Adele one is amazing. The Tom Jones one. And the last, uh, last thing I'll say, just as an observation, is that I don't think that Connery's Bond is as sexist as, as I thought he would have been. That I think the films are a little bit more sexist than the character is. So I thought that he came out of it quite well in my eyes because I expected it to be a lot more misogynistic than it was. Yeah, well, they're, they're pretty... It's they're playful. They're playful. They're pretty misogynistic for the time. There's a lot of the imperialist stuff is kind of like the racism is a little bit there. And anyway, but again... Oh yeah, the, there's a moment where he says like, um, fetch my shoes to uh, the, the, the henchman, the black guy on the island. Yeah. Um, and I thought that's a, bit, that's a bit insensitive. But I loved when he's he's got Honey Rider and he keeps saying like, listen, honey... <laughs> It's a bit black adderish. But I what I liked about what Phoebe Waller-Bridge said, who was one of the writers on the new one, she said, look, it's fine having the character be sexist as long as the film isn't sexist. Like, you know. Yeah, I, so that's where I think the originals sort of fall down in certain regard. Yeah. And I think going forward, you can still have Bond being a sexist big. You can still you can still have sexiness in the film. And I think sexiness is so important in Bond. And I hope going forward that they that they re-embrace that, that they remember that, you know, beauty and sex appeal is a, a big aspect of the Bond franchise, especially if you look at the latter-day Roger Boers. Oh, hello, that leathery, leathery skin in a bed waiting for a, a young twin. With Mayday. <laughs> With Mayday. Kevin, we have finished Bond's best Bond scene. I am going to spin the wheel for your next topic and I am spinning. What are you hoping for, Kev? Uh, something with few films to watch. That's been something that has surprised me. Uh, this this season is all of the films we got to watch. Yeah, we've watched a lot of films. And your topic for this week, I don't know if you're going to laugh or cry, it's best disaster scene. <laughs> I am really happy with that, actually. That is actually, that's good. That's a genuinely good one. Okay. Great. Disaster movie scene, obviously. Yes, yes, not a disaster scene. All Roland Emmerich films. That that that's well, that's <laughs> basically the entire franchise done right there. Right, yeah. we have another episode in the can. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Good luck editing it. I know. And also, thank you, listeners, for listening. Please like and review us on whatever uh, podcast platform you use, and. And we have over 20-odd extra podcasts, bonus podcasts available for anyone that wants to be a patron of the show. For the price of a pint, you can be a subscriber. And we put out mini episodes, which are about half an hour each, 
pretty regularly, almost every week. And we do extra commentaries and we have guests and what uh, and the like and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we love doing them. We're going to keep doing them. So jump on in and, and get involved. And thank you to our Patreon backers who are uh, listening. Love you. <laughs> love you. <laughs> Kevin and Patreon backers. All right. Good luck. I love that moment actually with a code word that uh, Money Penny gave Bond was to say, I love I you. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, everyone. Disaster movies. I'm looking forward to that, actually. The Best Bits podcast is produced by Will and Kevin. All audio clips and music heard in this episode is the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. If you have any notes, comments, scene suggestions, or just want to get in touch with us, email us at bestbitspodcast at gmail.com. Wait a second there. David Arnold didn't do the music for GoldenEye. It was Eric Serra. And here is a clip from the lad's latest mini bits bonus show. The full episode, plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon. The best bits with Will and Kevin. No, the best bits with Kevin and Willem. From the films and the, the TV and the latest films. Something, something, something. something. Um, don't forget that you owe us three euro. <laughs> you okay. can't remember really what. <laughs> oh my God. I, I did a whole Irish theme. The best bits with Kevin and Willem. Talking TV <laughs> Okay, right. I'm gonna find the fucking thing because it's gonna be the music to start the episode. I don't think I've heard this. You have. Well, maybe you haven't. I don't think I have heard this. I do. I suspect that what you do is you just put the laugh and emoji thing and think I'll listen to that some other time. Fuck, that'll do. Because <laughs> it's bound to be funny in his eyes. So yeah. I'll just tell him what he wants to hear. I actually only laugh the emoji when I've actually listened to it. I should have taken the hint that nobody was responding to the Podbot one. Like, nobody was giving me any reaction to it. And oh. I thought, they hadn't listened to it yet. And then, of yeah. course, I was delighted with that, and people hated it. <laughs> it's not, it, was, it, was, it wasn't easy on the ears in, a, in the sense that it was just her monotone voice, so there was no up and down. That's the thing. Yeah, I know. I tried my best. You're a bug and I'm a feature. Pray to this mantis or I'll eat you. And if you don't know my name, here's an update to teach you. I'm, I'm, I'm Hogus and I'm the future. An AI podcasting computer. The number one zero one zero zero one one producer. Yeah, that's exactly what did you do? So. Don't forget, now you owe us three euro. I come off this stage. I'm not, I've not. I've. I've not heard this. I swear to God. I'm going to send it to you right now, and you can get a genuine reaction. I'll actually listen to it. So I'm. I have my WhatsApp open. The best is Kevin Willem. From the telly and the latest film. Talking shit to the dynamic duo. Don't forget, no, you owe three euro. Come off this stage, old That's genuinely my first time hearing that. <laughs> I just could easily have just scrubbed it from my memory. That's the other thing that could have happened. How do you operate? I, 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 I generally just go on impulses. So if I need to toilet, I just toilet. And does, I, that doesn't necessarily mean or I need to be in the proximity like a of a toilet. Yeah, so I'm saying. You just go. I just nappy it, Kevin. I just man, I just adult nappy it. Oh, we've got loads to talk about. Um, <laughs> I've watched a load of things. So have I. But I think I should get one thing off my chest straight away because I think 
the discourse out there sometimes can feel really artificial to me and it can feel like people will films to be worse than they are in order to have something to point at and ridicule and sort of create content about. Should I start a timer? Have we just started? Start the timer because I'm rare to go. I saw Madam Web. Right. I honest to God know nothing. All I I know is I saw a poster very recently. It went... There's a Madam Web film, and I'm... What is this? So it's a Spider-Verse adjacent Marvel movie. Yeah, it's it's one of these Sony things where they did Venom, and they're doing Craven the Hunter, okay. and it's sort of an offshoot of the Spider-Man movies. But I don't right. know what universe they're in, because they're trying to blend them all together. So is this the Tobey Maguire Spider-Verse? To me, it feels like it's in that space. Mm. Anyway, I thought... I'm done with superhero movies. I'm just over them. I watched Captain Marvel not re- long ago, and I thought it was just tedious. It's so lifeless. The Marvels, not Captain Marvel, is that what Marvels? Well, yeah. she's in it. Captain Marvel, Captain yeah. Marvel Two. It was just sort of like it was another one of those films that felt like Ant Man in that everything was chemical and synthetic and fake and mm-hmm. airless, and you know you just have sound stage after sound stage and. I just feel profoundly depressed watching those films. I feel like yes, there's nothing organic happening in these. From the lines of dialogue, to the hairstyles, to the costumes, to the sets, to the music, to everything just feels... It's artificial, wafer-thin, just wafery, artificially, no sustenance, no satisfaction. You know protein in it whatsoever. You feel like, oh yeah. wow, I just, I just put something down my throat and I'm still hungry. It feels like eating plastic. Okay. On the whole, it's just drifted so far away from what Iron Man was that I just don't care about them. Yet, I found The Flash really fun because it it felt like a Bill and Ted type movie at times. It was off the wall bonkers and I don't really particularly give a shit about special effects. Whether they're good or bad, you know, I can buy into it because of the ideas behind it or the concepts behind it. So I wasn't like revolted by the, the special effects of the flash I just thought you know it's mm. funny to see babies falling out of windows and being put into microwaves and things like that so I went to the Madame Web not really giving a fuck about the genre but I wanted to see it for the sake of having an opinion on it and the trailer was awful it had that terrible line reading in it from the Dakota Johnson where she's, she's shitting out exposition and I think people had the film's cards marked at that stage and uh, the film itself, to me, played like a Final Destination action thriller. And I thought it was really pleasant. It didn't bother me in the slightest. I didn't have any of the issues that everybody else has. It was uh, a reluctant hero with no superpowers whatsoever other than having premonitions, trying to keep three teenage girls alive against somebody who's like the evil version of Spider-Man who wants to murder them. And they just played it out in a very cinematic way where it felt like a Sam Raimi type Spider-Man. It looked as good as that. It was all real locations. For me, it felt like a lovely throwback to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. And I don't get why everybody loads the film. I thought it was just fun. Oh, wow. Uh, all I've yeah. seen is the negative discourse. And you're the first voice. I believe, you know, I haven't listened to the episode because I haven't watched the film yet. I know the Cinemile uh, had differing views. Oh, fuck. Me and Kathy, we were the, so far the only people that I know who don't think the film is dire, but they've almost had a hernia on that episode. It was <laughs> very enjoyable listen to listening to it. 
I have to listen to it. He was, I'm really curious. I'm really he was curious. disgusted because Cathy was pushing back and I thought it was very, very funny. And then when I saw it, I was like, do you know what? I am actually on the side of Cathy here. This is actually grand. Right. This is actually grand. So I thought, <laughs> but you it's know so what? Funny. It didn't feel like a superhero movie. So I liked it for that reason. Oh, it's okay. I'm just going to look up some of the, the credits. And I liked Dakota um, Johnson's performance as well. She was playing this sort of curmudgeonly antisocial character. And to put that type of person in the role of having to be a protector is actually really fun for me. And it's a role that you don't see many female characters inhabiting. That's more like a Harrison Ford type role. And um, I enjoyed it. So I don't get why everyone is shitting their britches over it. It's grand. Thank you.